Well, good morning, everybody. Let's just be still for a moment, aware that we are in the presence of our living God. Happy is anyone who becomes wise, who gains understanding. There is more profit in that than there is in silver, and it is worth more to you than gold. Wisdom is more valuable than jewels. Nothing you want can be compared with it. The prayers I'm using for worship this morning are taken from a book called Prayers of the People, which is a newly published anthology of prayers written by British Baptists to celebrate the retirement of Reverend Dr. John Weaver, who is the principal of Bristol Baptist College, I think. Well, it might be South Wales. I ought to get that one right, haven't I? Oh, South Wales. Sorry, Jeff. So we're going to use this prayer, um, which was written actually by some ministers in Manchester as our opening prayer. I've had to tweak it a bit to make it fit Glasgow, but we'll get there. Let's pray. God of creation, spring turns to summer, leaves burst forth, the rain falls upon the earth, the moon tugs the tidal seas, day follows night, and night follows day. Mountains look down from their lofty heights, forests inhale deeply, cleaning the air, majestic confidence breathed through creation. God of our urban culture, dandelions break through concrete, proclaiming your glory. Birds sing in backyards, building nests for the next generation. Cafe umbrellas flutter in the warm breeze. Glasses chink to the sound of gentle laughter. Skyscrapers shoot their way confidently into the sky. Steel sculptures celebrate industrial heritage. Street entertainers play the familiar songs of lovers. A bustling confidence of urban culture. God of our diverse community. A toddler takes her first faltering steps. An elderly woman sits regally on a bench enjoying the view. A young man questions his sexuality. A couple begin to decorate their first home together. A grandmother takes grandchildren to the museum. A woman becomes apprentice and steps inside a university. A man sits outside Central Station with his dog, basking in the glory of the day. A quiet confidence sweeping through the community. God of creation. God of our urban culture. God of our community. 
Breathe through us your quiet assurance. Breathe through us your steadfast love. Breathe through us your gentle confidence that we may be all you aspire us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I wonder if anybody here has ever found any treasure. Anybody found any treasure ever? It's looking like not. Well, I've got some kind of treasure hidden around the church today. And there's nothing up on the mezzanine. There is nothing in the kitchen. And unless it's been moved again, there is nothing on the stage. But there are four lots of treasure hidden around the church. So I wonder if the young people would like to see if they can find them. Would you like to go and have a hunt around? And I will say whether you're warmer or colder according to where you are as you're you're going. So you're quite cold if you're here. So I'll say you're warmer if you're getting close to it. So if you're here, you're quite cold. So you walk around having a look. Oh, Freya's getting warmer. Warmer, 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 warmer. Boiling hot. Fantastic. Okay, so that's the first lot of treasure. Lovely. Do you want to see what else you can find? Okay, kind of warmish. Getting warmer, Sarah. Lots warmer, 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 warmer. Boiling hot. Fantastic. What did you find? You can bring it and show everybody. Okay, two more things fine. Are you going to join in, Leo? Or are you too old for treasure hunt? Okay, do you want to put that on the table for us? Oh, oh Freya's just gone getting colder, having been very hot. She's just getting colder. Now she's getting warmer again. And she's boiling. And Sarah's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. And so hot, she's about to catch fire. Okay, what have you got there, Freya? Some bangles. Fantastic. And Freya, Sarah's just got a, a busy job now with the last lot of treasure. Mm. Just talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> okay, what have we got now? So much treasure, I think I have to have two people to carry it. What have you found now, eh? So we have some lovely shiny gold coins. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your help, girls. That's brilliant. Treasure. Mm. Who likes stories about treasure? Anybody like stories about treasure? Some people like stories about treasure. Yeah. What stories have you heard about treasure, Freya? I can remember. You might not be able to remember. I like stories about pirates and treasure. One of my favourite stories when I was growing up was Treasure Island, which is all about lots of pirates and treasure. Well, we're going to hear now two very short stories that Jesus told about treasure. I think Barbara's going to read those for us. The first one's the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like this. A man happens to find a treasure hidden in a field. He covers it up again and is so happy that he goes and sells everything that he has and then he goes back and he buys that field. That's that one. Now the parable of the pearl. Also, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A man is looking for fine pearls 
And when he finds one that is unusually fine, he goes, sells everything that he has. What do you think he does? He buys the pearl. Wow. So somebody sells everything they can to buy a field. Somebody sells everything they can to buy a pearl. Hmm. Now, I wonder if any of the grown-ups will remember a television program called The Price is Right. There are a few people nodding and a few people pretending they've never heard of it. Well, I don't think I ever watched it, but as far as I remember, it was one of those programs where people had to guess the price of various things. And I think if you were the closest guess, you won it or you got some points or something. Well, I've done a bit of research this week to find some of the most expensive things in the world. And you've got to guess what the prices of these objects might be. And, of course, if I press the button too hard, you'll get the price straight away. So I'll be a bit careful here. So this is the most expensive shoe, or half of the most expensive pair of shoes, in the world. So would anybody like to guess what the price of that most expensive pair of shoes in the world is. £2,000, you reckon? Okay. Any other guesses? Two million. Two million? Fifty thousand. Okay. Well, I don't know if Neil's been looking at my notes, but they are indeed <laughs> two million pounds for a pair of shoes. So we'll all go out and have a pair of those, shall we? Especially the gents in the congregation. We'd all look very nice in our jewel-encrusted £2 million shoes. My goodness me. So that's the most expensive pair of shoes in the world. The most expensive car in the world. Any ideas what that might be? Higher or lower than the shoes, do you think? Higher? In fact, that's Bruce Forsyth, isn't it? Higher, higher, lower, lower. Okay, so you think it's going to be more than the shoes. Well, let's have... Sorry? You think five million. Okay. Well, it is actually a mere 1.4 million. So you could actually have the car and have some change for the price of the shoes. This shows you what a strange old world it is. I can't remember what it is, but it's a very flashy car. Uh, 1.4 million. We could um, actually build a new church for that, or new triced bit of the church for that, couldn't we? Wow. Okay, what's next? The most expensive house in the world. This is just one of the rooms. Um, it has a garage for something like 150 cars, but the person who owns it has 160 cars, so they still have to park in the street. Um, I forget how many rooms it's got, but it's something like. Um, 20 bathrooms or something in this house. So how much do you think this might cost? More or less than the car? More than the car. More or less than the shoes? More. Okay, so if the shoes were 2 million, roughly how many times more do you think this might be? You think it might be about 20 million? Okay, well, it's, it's either 622 million or 62 million because it was actually the price was given in billions of dollars, and I don't know whether it was US billions or UK billions, but it's probably 622 million pounds for that house, which is in India. Now there's pause for thought, isn't it? When you think of some of the images we see of India and somebody has a house at 622 million pounds. Oops. 
Okay. You can all get this one, right? Because I hit the thing too hard. This is the most expensive ring in the world, which was 10 million pounds. So 10 cars, roughly, or five cars, six cars, something like that, or one ring. I wonder which you would buy. 10 million pounds for one ring. I don't think you'd dare wear it, would you? This is the most expensive Barbie doll in the world. Anybody got a Barbie doll at home? Or, yes? You've got a Barbie doll for her. How much do you think your Barbie doll cost? Went to buy? About five pounds. Okay. That sounds not too far adrift. It, I think some of the fancy ones are about 20 pounds, aren't they? But that's sort of amount of money. So this is the most expensive Barbie doll in the world. So how much do you think she might have cost? If yours was sort of five, ten pounds, how much do you think this one cost? Five thousand? Five hundred? Ten thousand? Well, the fives are kind of right. Fifty-two thousand pounds. I think it's a jewel-encrusted Barbie doll. Um, that is from uh, the Far East. That's from Indonesia. Again, it's interesting. It's some of these countries where there's a lot of poverty and severe poverty that we find these incredibly expensive things. But £52,000 for a Barbie doll. This is the most expensive toy car in the world. As you can see, it is jewel-encrusted. Any of the gents remember Hot Wheels that you either played with yourself or your sons or grandsons have enjoyed? So how much do you think a jewel-encrusted toy car might cost? A thousand pounds? Any advance? Okay, it's actually a hundred thousand pounds. So you can have one toy car, or for ten times as much, you can have a real car that's incredibly expensive. Um, I mean, that's, that will buy a lot of people a house, wouldn't it? In, even in parts of Britain. And certainly, what would a hundred thousand pounds do? in some of the other countries. Okay, we're nearly there now. Most expensive bottle of wine in the world. 1989 Chateau Lafitte or something. One bottle. 10,000. 10, okay. 100,000 pounds. So, was it six glasses of wine in a bottle? Something like that. So, that would be quite an expensive tipple, wouldn't it? And it might not even taste very nice when you finally got it open. And I think this is the last one. The most expensive food item in the world is a particularly expensive kind of mushrooms. Who likes mushrooms? Quite a few people like mushrooms. How much do we pay for our mushrooms, do you think, for a kilo of mushrooms? About a pound? Maybe 150 if you're buying the fancy ones? So how much do you think a kilo of these would cost? About £1,200 per kilo of mushrooms. Um, if, if you think what a mushroom weighs, that's an awful lot of money just for one mushroom. So, very interesting, isn't it? Some of the things are very, very expensive. But these stories that Jesus told us were about people who found very, very expensive things and would want them. Oh, I've got a lot, some lions. I've forgotten about the lions. This is the most expensive pet in the world most of us might have a goldfish or a dog or a cat. This is a very expensive cat. This cat would cost £86,000 for one. So there you go, very expensive things. But that is the sort of level that those stories are about. The stories that Jesus told was somebody that found something that was as, meant as much to them as those expensive things. And this 
is the most expensive Bible in the world. It's one that comes from Canada, and they got people to write bits out and do calligraphy and illustration for it. And one copy of that Bible would cost you £80,000. Now, I know the word of God is priceless, but £80,000 for a Bible? I'm not convinced. So there you go, some very, very expensive things. Now, I've got a question for you. And that question is to think about what is the most precious thing that you own? The thing that means the most to you in the whole wide world. You don't have to tell me, but you have to think. And how much would you be prepared to spend to get that? Would you spend everything you've got or some of what you've got? And is there anything you can think of that you might be willing to sell all you've got? So for the grown-ups, that means selling your house, selling your car, selling your holiday home if you've got one, selling your motorbike, selling your computer, all that, sell all that. Is anything you'd be prepared to sell all of that to own? Because that's what the man in each of those stories did, sold everything they had in order to buy something they thought was very, very precious. We listen for the word of God from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, reading from verses 13 to 26. Jesus blesses little children, and then the rich young man. Some people brought children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them, But the disciples scolded the people. Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not stop them, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He placed his hands on them, and then went away. Once a man came to Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What good thing must I do to receive eternal life? Why do you ask me concerning what is good? answered Jesus. There is only one who is good. Keep the commandments if you want to enter life. What commandments? he asked. Jesus answered, Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Respect your father and your mother. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. I have obeyed all these commandments, the young man said. What else do I need to do? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he was went away sad because he was very rich. Jesus then said to his disciples, I assure you, it will be very hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. I repeat, it is much harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. When the disciples heard this, they were completely amazed. Who? Then can be saved, they asked. 
Jesus looked straight at them and answered, This is impossible for human beings, but for God, everything is possible. And then from chapter 6, Riches in Heaven. Do not store up riches for yourself here on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and robbers break in and steal. Instead, store up riches for yourselves in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and robbers cannot break in and steal. For your heart will always be where your riches are. Thank you very much, Jeff. Now, for younger people, we've got some craft for you to do. We've got some treasure boxes. If you'd like to go up on the stage, you can make a treasure box. And you might want to take some of this treasure to see if you can fit it in a treasure box. And I'm going to talk to the grown-ups. So I suspect the younger people will probably rather make treasure boxes than listen to me talk. And if any of the grown-ups really can't face listening to me, you can go and make a treasure box as well. That's fine. I won't sulk. So there were two parables we heard today, as well as two other readings. And those two parables are a bit more like one-liners, aren't they? There's no plot to speak of. The characters don't get developed. And as I'm sure you found when Barbara was reading them for us, the whole thing's over almost before we've heard it. These are not really serious moral tales. They're almost a bit more like jokes, They're told very quickly, and they could make you laugh at the absurdity of what is described. And then you find yourself thinking, hang on a minute, what is it really saying to me? Perhaps in order to appreciate these parables, we have to try and think ourselves back into the context of the time in which they were told. Most people would have lived in fairly simple houses And the bricks of which they were made probably weren't baked. They may even have been made of mud. There were no locks on the doors, though it's possible that people would have put a bar of wood across to to effectively lock the door. And there were certainly no burglar alarms. If you went for a walk in Jerusalem or Judea, you would never have found burglar alarms as you do today. It would have been really easy to break into a house. In fact, one of our best-loved stories, the story of the man whose four friends brought him to Jesus and broke their way through the roof, illustrates just how easy it was to break into a house in those days. It seems that robbery was quite widespread, and anything that was valuable to you would be vulnerable to being stolen, so people would need to hide it away. Quite commonly, they would dig a hole in the floor, in the ground of their ha- under their house, and bury their money and anything of value there, where it would be reasonably safe from robbers. And there, in the damp and the dark, your things will, of course, be vulnerable. They might rot. They might get mildewed, which, if you were a good Jew, meant you actually had to destroy them. They might rust if they were made of base metal. If you had spare clothes, and you wouldn't have had a wardrobe, and you wouldn't have had loads of clothes in those days, let alone ridiculously expensive shoes, they would just be put in a corner of your house 
where they were relatively safe. But there was always the risk that a moth might come and lay their eggs in the folds of your garments, and the grubs would eat the fabric. Having things was not a risk-free option in those days. There were no bank vaults, no safes, no such thing as household insurance. You know, we've just had to have worked on our church as a result of an insurance claim. Such things didn't exist in those days. So that's the kind of context into which Jesus told these stories. So, imagine that somebody just might choose to bury their treasure in a field that they owned, thinking that's a safe place to put it. Or maybe somebody else thinks, well, not too many people walk through this field and I can just dig a hole and bury it. However the the treasure in that story got there, actually it's a pretty ridiculous story if you stop to think about it. A man is out walking in a field and lo and behold... He spies some treasure. Now, I don't know what picture that conjures up in your mind, but every time I hear that story, for me, it's one of those pirate treasure chests with the lid just slightly open and loads and loads of jewels pouring out. That's my image of treasure. Well, that's a ridiculous thing to happen, isn't it? You just walk through the field and lo, there in the middle of the field, It's a treasure chest with treasure pouring out. And I kind of have a cartoon sort of picture of this in my head. And the man goes, oh, treasure. Oh, nobody's looking. That's all right then. Quick, hide it away. That's okay. Nobody knows I found this treasure. Nobody else knows it's here. It'll be quite safe if I bury it. Now, of course, the spade must appear out of nowhere. And as soon as he's covered the hole, nobody can spot the hole. It's it's a crazy story in a way. And it should make people kind of laugh at the ridiculousness of it. But it's also a story designed to make people think, isn't it? This man goes off his way and I kind of think, hoping nobody's going to notice, just trying to look like I'm just out for a walk, even though I know there's treasure in this field and I've just buried it. And what does he go and do? He sells all that he owns to raise the money to buy that field to get the treasure. Now, I have a suspicion that the people that Jesus told the story to would have had a good laugh because he, I'm sure, was a brilliant storyteller. But then they'd start thinking, well, how did that treasure get there? And how come only that one person could see it? And why didn't the man, when he found it, Check out if somebody owned that treasure or had lost that treasure or it had been stolen from somebody. And what could it be that's so valuable that you would sell everything you've owned to buy it? He's going to have no house, no clothes, no possessions, just a field with a box of treasure in the middle of it. It's a crazy story. Or what about the merchant who was going out looking for fine pearls? This man knows a good pearl or a good jewel when he sees one, and all he wants is the best. We don't know whether he's somebody who buys and sells pearls or somebody who's buying them for his own enjoyment because the story doesn't tell us that. It's it's just a story after all. But there is something about the pearl that this man one day sees 
that makes it an absolute must-have. And I have this kind of picture that he's walked into a shop. I mean, they didn't have shops like we do in those days, obviously. But, you know, I imagine him standing in the jeweler's shop thinking, that's the one. Don't sell it to anybody else. I'll be back. And he runs off and he's off to the bank vault and getting all his pearls out. And he's selling everything he owns. All his spare clothes, all his silver, all his gold. And he comes back with his money just in the clothes he stands up in. Plonks it all on the counter and says, right, I'll have that pearl. What? Is that not just the most stupid thing to do in the world? Surely those to whom Jesus told this story would laugh. What is it that you might want more than anything else that you can own? And would anybody ever be daft enough to give up everything they've worked hard to achieve to own just one thing? Now, we know, because we hear those stories read from the Bible, which was written down long after Jesus had gone, that these are parables of the kingdom. But the people who first heard them just heard the stories on their own. We find familiarity with other stories about things that are hidden, the buried treasure or the yeast in a batch of bread, and about things that are tiny, like a mustard seed. Or a pearl. The kingdom of God is powerful and it's transformative. But it's small and it's often hidden. It's easily missed. We know that. We've heard this all before. But actually, sometimes we miss so much because we get too close to the stories. Because these are actually incredibly demanding stories. In each of them, the character sells everything he has in order to get the one thing above everything else that he wants. We do need to be a bit careful, because the kingdom of God is not something that we can own. We can't possess it, we can't buy it, we can't buy part of it. But actually we can buy into it. We choose to be a part of it. And the price of that buying in Is loyalty, commitment, service, openness. And so it goes on. But what about those other two passages we heard from Matthew's Gospel? Each one about wealth and treasure that help us to understand those parables in a way that gives us a healthy attitude towards the possessions that we have. Because whether we like it or not, on a world scale, every person in this room is rich. I don't think Jesus is railing against material wealth per se. What I think Jesus is asking people to think hard about is how belongings, possessions and money can ensnare the people that actually the possessions possess us and lead us to be unable to serve God as perhaps we might. Remember the context in which Jesus' hearers lived. In fact, think of the context in which most people in the world still live and our forebears in this country lived. No pension provision, no national health service, no welfare, no human rights legislation. 
in those days, and for many people worldwide, it is still financially survival of the fittest. It would, in that context, be quite reasonable if you had spare money or clothes or possessions to store them away, not just for a rainy day, as we would say in this country, but because one day you would definitely need them. The Jewish law required people to provide for orphans, widows, and foreigners. But we know from the stories that Jesus tells us that in practice, that often didn't happen. So people who had a little bit would dig a hole and bury it where it would be hopefully safe. If they had a spare tunic, they would wrap it up in a corner and hope it didn't get eaten by the moths before they needed it. And what Jesus was saying to them is, well, actually, does this do you any good, having this stuff stored away? Because the moths might eat your spare tunic. Your coins might tarnish or be devalued. It would be very easy for somebody to break through the the mud walls of a house and steal the thing that you've hidden in a corner. And even if it survives, you can't take it with you when you die. There's a saying that's used in the north of England, and um, bizarrely, my friends and I, had, it came up in conversation yesterday. There's no pockets in shrouds. Maybe Scots say it as well. But you can't take it with you. There's no pockets in shrouds. That's what Jesus said. The attitude we have to the things that we own says a lot about us. Now, be clear, Jesus is not saying being poor is automatically good. But he's also saying something perhaps we could do well to hear, that the possessing of possessions can actually become a stumbling block to us. If we're not careful, it's us that are owned by the things we own. All our energy goes into servicing that house, that holiday home, that car, that whatever it is that we own. This is the case with the rich young man who came to Jesus. He was a decent enough young man, deeply religious, knew what the Torah said, and he so wanted to get it right. It wasn't that he was wealthy that worried Jesus. It was the fact that the wealth owned the man. Knowing and believing the right things isn't enough. It has to go into our everyday lives. And that isn't always easy. I just want to give you an example from my own life at the moment. And please don't come to me afterwards and tell me what I should do. I'm just using myself as an example to help you to think about things in your own life. 25 years ago, I took out an endowment mortgage for just under £19,000. And that would have paid for the house that I bought at the time. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that you could have bought a house for £19,000, but I did. Obviously, along the way, since I sold up to train to be a minister, that endowment has been completely separated from any property. The reality is, I will never afford to buy property again. That's fine, that's something I have accepted. But despite all the negative warnings over the years, I actually got back slightly more than the cost of that house would have been, which is interesting considering all the warnings there were. And at the moment, it's sitting in my building society account whilst I decide what to do with it. 
Of course, had I still had a house, I wouldn't be doing this thinking because it would have just paid off the mortgage. But kind of go with me on this one. At one level, perhaps I could say, well, this is my retirement plan. This is my money buried in the ground for the day when I need it. Because that money, plus even the pathetic interest the building society pays at the moment, could pay my rent for quite a few years. But actually, at another level, this is the kind of treasure that the moth can eat and the rust can destroy. And I think I have to think carefully how to employ that in a way that honours God. Now, I'm not making any rash decisions. I'm taking some time over this to think about it carefully and prayerfully. But I have a suspicion that somewhere between keeping it all for myself in that building society and giving it all away is what will actually honour God. It will be easy to say, well, just give it all away because that's what the parable says. Well, maybe, but I'm not entirely sure because God gives us brains and gives us things to use wisely. You see, I think those parables we've heard this morning ask each one of us a question that seems simple but is actually difficult. We're asked what it is that we would give up everything we own to gain. We're asked to think about our bank balances and our wardrobes, our jewellery boxes, our technology, our garages, our cupboards, and say, how is it that what we have is being employed in God's kingdom? Or is it slowly decaying unused? I know lots of people who use their cars to give people lifts. Lots of people who offer hospitality. Lots of people who give lots of money to charity. Things can be used and are used in the service of the kingdom. But we're invited to think about that again. The crazy image of a big laden camel squeezing through, well... A narrow gate, or was it literally the eye of a needle? Is a reminder of the enormity of the challenge. You know, let's not pretend it's simple for us who have and are in a society that expects us to have lots and do lots. But what Jesus says is that where our treasure is, there our heart is also. We are part of the kingdom, God's kingdom of shalom. And how we use what we have plays a direct part within that. It's been a funny old week, hasn't it, watching the news. I did something for the first time today, and I did it for the last time. I bought a copy of the News of the World. I've never, ever bought one, and I did debate whether it was the right thing to do. But somewhere in what has happened there, I think we see some of the complexity of our world. What some people did was quite clearly wrong, and something had to happen. But there are people who were going about their everyday jobs who are now unemployed, Because somebody made a rash decision. But also on the news was the the announcement of the birth of a new nation. And that seems to me 
a cause for celebration and yet a cause for concern as they work out how to live as honourable human beings, building policies and laws that will hopefully make for a just kingdom. And so we bring these prayers from the book, which are written in that kind of complicated world of which we are a part. So let's pray together. news broadcasting, real-time footage from behind enemy lines, podcasts downloaded to view at convenience, weblogs offering instant comment from Joe Public, mobile phones bleep with the latest news bulletins, the signs of the times. So much devastating news. So many real-life tragedies. So much intrusion into personal stories. So little respect for human dignity. An overwhelming flow of pain. A tidal wave of need. An unheard clamour of injustice. And the occasional feel-good story to give us a glimmer of hope. The signs of the times. An overload of information. A din of words and pictures, each trying to make an impact to captivate our attention so we don't flick channels or switch off and complain of compassion fatigue. We become desensitized, numb to the pain depicted on our screens. Unable to ask the unasked questions. The signs of the times. The signs of the times, the news of the world, are real life people. Grandparents, mothers, fathers, children and grandchildren. Cities. Towns and villages. Homes filled with colour and the knickknacks we can't throw away. Laughter and tears. Joy and pain. Birth and death. God of all time. Help us to read the signs of the times the news of the world, to the emotions of human stories, the pain of families torn apart, the horror and ugliness of conflict, the joy of creativity and achievement, the hope of birth and children playing, the laughter and celebration of a beautiful world, We pray for the people behind the media attention. Help us not only to read, but to feel, and then to respond to the news of the world, the signs of the times. In Christ's name.
آمد.